allow me to ask you a few rhetorical questions. How should a lady be treated? How should a gentleman be treated? What is a lady? What is a gentleman? How are those who are not a lady or a gentleman to be treated? What's right in the world? What's wrong? What's fun? What's interesting? What is important? Now, when I ask you these questions, invariably something pops into your mind. And the answer to questions like this reveals our interests, our passions, our perspectives. And what's more, if we are honest, we will recognize that our answers to these questions has been taught to us. Sometimes we have been taught through formal instruction. Other times we pick up our answers to those questions through enculturation. We absorb it from our environment. And sometimes we learn to answer these questions as a result of internally processing something we see or experience in the world outside. So for example, how do you survive in the world? Well, people develop coping mechanisms in response to what they experience. But whatever your answer is to any of those questions, the fact of the matter is, is that you were taught to respond to those questions in a certain way. In light of that reality, perhaps you will see that there is perhaps no greater influence or power that one person can exert over another than to be in the position of influencing the answers to those questions. To be in the position of influence, to shape someone's perspective of the world, to shape someone's perspective of themselves, that is true power. We see that in evil ways where a victim of abuse comes to believe that they indeed deserve what is being inflicted upon them. But we see it in more innocent and indeed proper ways in regards to a child who comes into the world and, and pretty much everything they learn about reality comes from the influence of their parents. We are continually surrounded by voices and influences that would shape our very understanding of reality and self. And make no mistake about it, the world we live in wants to shape you. And virtually every school of thought in the field of psychology, every perspective in philosophy, and coming together, these two fields influence everything in the arts, education, the sciences. Everything in psychology and philosophy is in the grip of something known as selfism. The assertment of the individual. You see it in such catchy phrases as self-differentiation, self-realization, self-actualization, self-determination, Self-esteem. Self, self, self. 
we are conditioned from the world around us from a very early age to think in terms of our autonomous self, to actualize what we want, to assert ourselves to ensure that we get our rights and to lash out in incredible hostility and anger as soon as someone does not recognize our rights. But here's the rub. We exist as beings in relationship. So what happens when you have one person who has a view of self that says, I'm here to maintain my rights and assert myself and get what I got coming? And you better give it or I'm going to be angry. What happens when a person like that is in relationship with someone else who has a perspective that says, I'm here to get my rights, claim my own, and assert myself and get mad when I'm not? What happens? What happens when these two views of self or of the world around us don't jive? We have conflict, do we not? Sometimes we have open conflict, fighting, bickering. Sometimes we just have discontentment in relationship and seething bitterness as we don't think we're getting what we deserve. How many times I have heard that. My spouse isn't treating me the way I deserve. I've heard it hundreds of times. And it's in the church too. And here's the bad news. Our culture has taught us a view of self that is fundamentally anti-relational. The very notion of self that our world pushes on you is contrary to relationship. And yet, our culture responds to this anti-relational notion of self by prescribing more of the same. Like a person with a rash, with a rash and an itch, and they try to itch it, making the scratch it, make the itch go away, and it doesn't, and so they keep digging at it. So too are the solutions that our society gives us, which result in us basically digging the hole more and more. Basically, go to therapy and tell the other person your side of the story so that way they will understand that they have been encroaching upon your rights. And so they better just relinquish their own. But they're telling the other person this. And so it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Is it any wonder then that we live in a culture in which we are so focused upon rights and entertainment and, and being amused and yet happiness, happiness and contentment and joy and peace and harmony are at all-time lows. You read the studies in, from Europe where nations such as Denmark are, are touted as just being these happy places on earth where they're so much happier than we are in America. In America, if you'd just be more like Denmark, you'd be so happy. But scratch below the surface. Why is it that nearly a quarter of their population is on antidepressants? And their suicide rate, in terms of percentages, not numbers, because we grossly outnumber them, in terms of percentages, is double ours. 
Is that a really happy people? Happiness is in short supply. And our culture keeps drilling down that the key to happiness is to assert your rights. Assert yourself. And I'm here to say that that is patently and fundamentally untrue. The good news is that as a colony of the kingdom of heaven, the gospel calls us to a perspective of self, a perspective of the other, a perspective of reality that actually enables community. It actually enables you to have peace despite the horrible circumstances you're in. To find joy when other people prosper, even when you are not. In other words, the ethic and value of the kingdom is so fundamentally contrary to this world that it actually just might work. And so, in our study of Philippians that we are embarking upon, we're going to see all these things brought to the fore. Joy in the midst of affliction. Happiness when others are prospering. Unity, humility, peace. All following a very countercultural notion. And what is that? The notion that the key to coming together is to drop the ego. Ego. We're going to look at that. Because it is dangerous. But stepping back to introduce the book, you may wonder, Ben, why did you go to Philippians? Well, it is my assertion that when you look at the cultural situation of all the various churches in the New Testament era, none more closely approximates our own situation like the church at Philippi. Now here's where I'm going to go into some of that dusty history. But I love it. Oh man, I love it. People are always saying, oh, the Bible is so full of these details. No, this is really good stuff. And I think it shows... Anyway, let's just say there's value in seeing that other people that lived 2,000 years ago were remarkably more like us than, than different. So what's the big deal with Philippi? How is it that Philippi is somewhat similar to us? Well, Philippi was an ancient city. Uh, even at the time of the writing of this letter, it was an ancient city. It was founded in approximately 350 B.C. by Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father. He founded the city because, lo and behold, there's gold in them there hills. And so with all these gold mines in the area, what a great way to fund his coming invasion of Greece. And so he founded the city, and it flourishes with all this gold. Okay. Fast forward about 300 years. Rome, the Republic, has taken over pretty much the entire Mediterranean basin. But the Republic is failing. And so Julius Caesar, claiming to want to save the Republic, declares himself dictator 
or Caesar, and lo and behold, he gets assassinated for it. The assassination of Caesar instigates a civil war, and it lasts about two years. On the one side, you have the main conspirators who want to preserve the old republic, Cassius and a guy named Brutus. On the other side, you have Caesar's nephew, Octavius, or Octavian as he's known, and a guy named Mark Antony. This civil war comes to its culmination and conclusion at a battle in B.C. 31, or I'm sorry, 41, called the Battle of Philippi. And it takes place on the massive plains just west of the city. It is there at the Battle of Philippi that the forces of Octavius and Mark Antony defeat the forces of Cassius and Brutus. And thus, there's peace in the empire. Now, what do you do with a defeated army? Because now that Octavius and Mark Antony wins, there's this massive army of defeated of, of losers. Well, they decide to celebrate their victory by granting clemency to all these veterans. And what better place to put them than in this nice town, Philippi? So it becomes a town populated with ex-Roman soldiers. Beautiful. Fast forward 10 years. As we know, there can be only one. And so this alliance between Mark Anthony and Octavius doesn't last forever. In fact, it goes downhill really quick. Mark Antony, as you know, he enters into an alliance and indeed an affair with Cleopatra of Egypt. And when he does this, Octavius compels the Senate to declare war. And so there's a brief little war. Mark Antony and Cleopatra commit suicide. And lo and behold, Octavius is the champion. And he renames himself Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, what to do with the defeated army of Mark Antony? Well, let's hearken back to some good days, some of the good old days, 10 years before, where we were champions together. He says, you know what, all of you, as long as you swear loyalty to me, and they did, I'm going to let you guys move back to Philippi, where we won a major victory together, because, you know, united we stand and all that. So many took him up on the offer. They moved back to Philippi. He gave them land. And to celebrate his new status as emperor, he colonizes, he, 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 he reclassifies Philippi just from a little town to an actual colony of Rome. So in all legal senses and aspects, it is like Rome. It's little Rome. The people are all granted Roman citizenship, they get to wear Roman dress. They speak Latin. They don't have a governor over them. They are true Romans. So here's a town that is proud of its heritage. A former bunch of military folks, they're patriotic. They have rights. They have privileges. They have prerogatives. They have a highly uh, stratified culture in their, in their city, like Rome, where there's a clear distinction between who's on top and who's on the bottom, and you treat a lady and you treat a gentleman differently than you treat you know, someone who's not. 
and you give respect and honor to people where they are in the social order of things. They don't like innovation. They don't like change. They're proud of their country and their rights. Sound like us a little bit? We're proud of our rights. We're proud of our country. And very much like our own culture, because of their status as Roman citizens, they were very much about the acquisition and giving of honor. Theirs was an honor society. So give me the credit that I've got coming. And I'll give you the credit you've got coming. But don't deny me my rights. Sound like our society? Yeah. Now the church at Philippi is fascinating. You can read about its founding in Acts chapter 16. It takes place, the founding of it, during Paul's second missionary journey. And he wants, he's, he's doing ministry along the coast of what's now modern Turkey. And the Holy Spirit prevents him from going further into Asia. And he, in a dream, he has a vision of a man of Macedonia. And so he takes that as a sign from the Lord that he needs to go. And so he crosses the Aegean Sea. And Philippi becomes the first church on the European continent. And this church remained, by the way, until the Middle Ages when the advancing Muslim army, the Ottoman Empire, uh, they all fled. This church is precious to Paul. He loves it. There's no major doctrinal controversy. Again, they're proud Romans. They don't like change. There's no gross immorality. Again, these are upright, decent folk. But there is division. And there is disagreement. And there is disunity. Because everybody's wanting to make sure that they get theirs. Now Paul could have approached this issue like he does with Galatians. If you've ever read Galatians, it's pretty interesting how he doesn't spend any time praising them. He pretty much comes out of the gate, I am astonished that you people are so messed up, basically. No. He loves this church, and they're precious to him, so he takes the gentle approach. But in these opening words in verses 1 and 2, we get a very gentle reminder of some important things. This introduction here, verses 1 and 2, are, is the most unique introduction of any in Paul's letters. First, in verse 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. What's unique about that, Ben? Look at any other letter of Paul, and he always does this. Paul, a apostle. Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul, whatever. He always identifies himself with something, comma, and Timothy, our brother, or, or, or Silas, or whoever's with him. So he's over here, and then there's whoever he's with. And that was kind of the expectation of the day because Paul, the great apostle, Paul, an older man, is not a social peer with whoever he's writing with. So, of course, you distinguish. But for a church struggling with unity, what message is he gently sending? 
to have himself listed along with this younger guy. And this is the only letter to a church in which he calls himself a servant. That, that's for our nice, you know, post, you know, we don't, it's slave. He calls himself a slave of Jesus. This is the only letter to a church in which he does that. Now, think in terms of the Roman Empire. A quarter of the population were slaves. It was not race-based slavery. It was just slavery. Anyone was a potential slave. But a quarter of the population were slaves, and slaves had virtually no rights. This is in stark contrast from the incredible privileges that a Roman citizen had. A slave was the lowest of the low. So to people who were so proud of their status in the empire as citizens, what message does it send for Paul, the great apostle, to identify himself as a slave? Now elsewhere, of course, Paul refers and he goes into great detail about the beautiful doctrine of adoption. We are sons and daughters of God. But here in this immediate context, do you think people who already suffered from a big head needed to hear more and more about how precious they are? Or do you think maybe they needed to be reminded of the total claim that God has over our lives that the term slave implies? So, I, the great apostle, am putting myself on equal terms with Timothy. And we're slaves. Not a position of honor. And then, this is the only time in an introduction where he lists the congregation and calls out the elders and the deacons. Now, what do you think he may be doing that for? Well, it's been my general observation that many times there's contention between management and and the workers. It's easy for there to be contention between the leadership of a church and the church itself. And so a gentle reminder is needed to remind, hey, we're all in this together. But then amongst the leaders themselves, and there is a very common tendency for the elders and the deacons to be at odds with each other. The elders have reason to think that, you know, we're more important than you because we're the the, the governors of the church, and it's easier for the deacons to think that they're in charge or that they're more important because we're the ones doing the real work around here. But Paul lists it all, saying, Saints in Christ Jesus and the overseers and deacons. In other words, you are all in this boat together. He does it gently, doesn't he? No browbeating. As if to say, follow my example and see yourself, despite whatever, whatever claims you may think you have to greatness or to prestige, see yourself as what you are, a mere slave for King Jesus. Your life is to be lived at his disposal. But no, all too often, We don't like Paul's advice. We want to keep coming back to ego. I know what's best. 
I know what's right. I'm reminded of the movie or the book, Prince Caspian. As you know, uh, at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter, Lucy, Edmund, and, uh, and Susan, they go back to England after living a lifetime in Narnia. Prince Caspian picks up about a year or so later, and they go back to Narnia and discover like 1,300 years has passed in Narnia time. And everything has changed. But Peter, hi King Peter, I know what's right. I've been there, done that. I've lived a lifetime here. When he learns that there's a bad guy encroaching upon Narnia, what does he want to do? He wants to go lead a frontal assault, doesn't he? And no one could talk him out of it. Because I know what's right. And so ultimately, they followed him because he is, after all, High King Peter. And what does it lead to? Disaster and defeat. So we've all read these words before. We've all read the book of Philippians. I sure hope we have. And we've read it. So we've got the counsel, but we keep coming, like High King Peter, back to our gut, which tells us, I know what's right. And so we've seen churches fall apart. We've seen marriages fall apart. We've seen families fall apart because people want to assert their ego. And what are we looking for with our ego? We're looking for, essentially, the blessed life. A life situation in which everything is okay. So in light of that reality, Paul then backs up and says what he commonly says. But here we see the significance of it in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul is able to lay off his claim of being an apostle. He's able to back away from asserting his rights and his prerogatives and claim equality with a mere brother and refer to himself as a slave, one who is at, complete, at the complete disposal of Jesus and call his congregation gently to do the same because he knows that ultimately the very thing that they are striving and contending and dividing over is the pursuit of what can only actually come from God. The grace you need, the peace you need, only comes to you from one source. God. God the Trinity, the Father and the Son, applied by the Spirit, gives you the very thing you are seeking. And of course, we have to ask ourselves, will we listen? Or will we keep stressing for our rights? Now, I think Paul knows that there's some profound freedoms that come with recognizing that we can lay down our ego. Three profound blessings. First, if we lay down our ego, then we are freed from the strain of trying to self-promote. So much energy is spent 
trying to posture ourselves, position ourselves strategically so that people look at us in the best possible light. what What a breath of fresh air it is to know that I don't have to posture anymore. I am secure in Jesus. And he gives me the blessed life that I need. And so recognizing that we are at his disposal frees me from having to spend my energy posturing before you. Second, we can be freed from the need to feel like we must be in control. Many of our battles are battles of simply control. Who is in charge here? Whether it's in your home or your classroom or in the church, most of our conflicts come down to who is in charge. And here you have the apostle who could very easily claim to be in charge, saying, I'm a slave. If we are freed from the need to be in control, then we are freed to be used by Jesus for the betterment of the group. So often we want to be the ones doing the sanding when really we are the block of wood. We need to be sanded. But we resist. Stop. Recognize that God has saved you, that God is in charge, that he has put you in relationship with others. And if you relax and give up this need to be in control of every little thing, then the sanding will be with the grain and it will be a lot less stressful on you. Third, if we stop trying to vie for authority, if we stop trying to assert our ego and our rights, then we are suddenly freed to enjoy the thing we have in Christ. Some of the most unhappy Christians are the ones who are so busy stressing about making sure their will is done on earth, so busy making sure that their rights are maintained, and they're jockeying for position, trying to posture themselves for public image, That occupies your time and affections. And you're not then glorying in what God has done for you in Christ. So relinquish the ego. You're a mere slave. Relinquish the ego. We're all in this together. Relinquish the ego. Stop posturing. And enjoy what God has done for you. If we can let go of the ego, we have before us the key for living life joyously in community together. And we also see the key for responding in a positive manner to the circumstances that confront us. Our culture tells us to seek our own, to promote ourselves to assert ourselves, to make sure no one shows you disrespect. And the gospel of the kingdom says, 
in Christ you have everything. And so you can lay down your arms and receive. That is the key to life together. Let's pray.